This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. Located in Metro Atlanta. Defined by grace, 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 community, community, and, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I just want to say how encouraging it is to see us. Y'all know we just got led by teenagers to a degree. Prayer, worship, no, seriously, that's such a, such a blessing to see just as we are continuing to, to build and rebuild as we come through the pandemic, to see what the Lord is doing just in young people, old folks, and not that anybody's old, but wise. <laughs> and it's, it's, such an encouraging, it's such an encouraging thing. And I think for a huge reason, Because right now, like any other time, it's important that we see ourselves as knitted together in each other. It's important that we understand how vital we are for each other. Intergenerationally, it's vitally important that we understand that. It's it's so important as we walk through this text that we've been walking through and we've been going through the Beatitudes and what it means to act as kingdom citizens. What does it mean to have this, this character of a disciple? Right? What does discipleship character look like? What does it mean to be blessed in God's economy? It's important for us to be able to process this together, young and otherwise, because we need to understand what it means to follow God. We need to understand what it means to hold each other accountable uh, for what it means to follow Jesus. And so to that end, I want us to walk through again these attributes of God's kingdom. I want us to just look again. We're at the very end. We're on the last beatitude um, as we continue through the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Take your time as we walk through each and every one of these and ask yourself, okay, what does this mean for me right now? What does this mean for me individually? What does this mean for me in my family What does this mean for me in my job, at my school, as a neighbor, as a citizen? What do these things mean? So let's go to the Word of God, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We talked a lot about these attributes and what it means Uh, to follow Jesus. We've talked about what it means to be a member of God's kingdom. And as we have said for the last month and a half, even two months, we've talked about just how upside down it appears when conventional wisdom would say none of these things make sense. Conventional wisdom would say it does not make sense to think that we would be blessed by acknowledging our own spiritual brokenness. Nothing in the world operates that way. And further, it doesn't make sense to say that we would find a blessing in in, in mourning and finding a place of emotional brokenness over that sinful state. And further, our our world doesn't seem to highlight the fact that there is a blessedness and an uplifting in acknowledging our humility and walking as one who is humble. Remember, we talked about not acting uh, humble and not putting on a mask of humility, but what it means to truly be humble and what it means to be merciful and to show mercy and how the mercy from God is contingent upon our mercy that we show to other image bearers. What it means to have a purity of heart, these purity of motives, 
what it means to not just want the right thing, but to want it for the right reasons, how there's a blessing in that, what it means to be a peacemaker and not just a peacekeeper, and how peacekeeping does not promise any blessing, but peacemaking and the dirty work and getting our fingers dirty, our hands dirty to make peace, that's where blessedness comes. All of those things build one onto the other. It's what we've been saying since we began. Each and every one builds on itself. Up to this final beatitude, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Now, we could spend a lot of time just talking about, okay, let's, let's, let's look at what an example of being persecuted for righteousness looks like. And we've done sermons on this before, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that. I will say this. Go back through all of the Beatitudes that we've talked about. Jesus has already laid out, he's given you, right, the, the syllabus for what righteousness should look like. These Beatitudes give you the syllabus for what righteousness should look like. So if any of these things you're doing and we find ourselves persecuted, we'll talk about what that means in a minute, but we find ourselves persecuted. Jesus said there's a blessing in that. So we ought not ever compromise any of these things. Any of these attributes of God's heart should never be compromised for any reason. If, if we find ourselves being persecuted, we still don't compromise because we hold on to this promise that there's a blessing. And that's what Jesus means. This is why he can say at the very end, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Because that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Later, you see the scripture says that they, pro uh, they, will, they will persecute you. Persecution will certainly come. They persecuted Christ, they will persecute you. Now, all of that is true. But I want to spend more time talking about what persecution is not. And the reason why I think it's important for us to focus on what persecution isn't is because ultimately, for the last at least half century, a few principles in Scripture have been quoted as bona fide promises. And I believe that they have posed real danger to other image bearers. Here's what I mean. 2 Timothy 3.12 says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's there. Jesus said in John 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Now, we know that when you look at church history, when you look at what was happening in the New Testament church, there was no shortage of examples of horrific torture and killing, murdering, for pe murdering people who legitimately followed Jesus, upheld Jesus as Savior. And even when the powers that be were, were almost demanding to the point of death, Recant what you believe about Jesus or die. Folks did not recant. That's real persecution. I think everybody would agree that's real persecution. But let me just say, that type of persecution is nothing. That is not at all what we see in the Western world. Nor is that what we see specifically here in America. Why am I saying this? Because we do live in a culture, in a society, specifically within Christendom, in which we often, as Christians, will say, I feel like we're being persecuted. Many have called this kind of the, the Christian persecution complex. Some call it the evangelical persecution complex. Because we believe that the calling card of a Christian is persecution. I mean, the scripture says we're going to be persecuted. So now people are on the lookout looking for persecution and, dare I say, create situations where they make themselves artificial martyrs and then say, I'm being persecuted now. Many Christians believe that, that persecution is, is something that ultimately is the way that we validate or authenticate our faith. I must be doing the right thing because I'm being persecuted, as I define it. I must be in God's will because I'm doing X, Y, and Z, believing I'm doing this for the glory of God, and I'm getting criticized, and I'm dealing with people uh, turning their, their noses at me or saying certain things or making jokes about me or denying me certain things. I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And now I feel more fueled because that persecution is proof that I must be following Jesus. 
And so many have therefore mislabeled their circumstances as being persecuted for their faith. And their responses to this misidentification causes much suffering. How should the type of persecution that Jesus says brings a blessing be identified? Well, he gave one important provision, right? He said, uh, being persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That's the only thing that brings a blessing. But sadly, for many, especially us here in America as American Christians, many times, whatever persecution we perceive is largely not because of the righteousness of Jesus, but because of our own self-righteousness. It just is. Any of us, if we're honest, there are things that we might build up or I might uh, perceive a certain way and go, I now say, think that this must be exactly where God is. And so I'm going to be here and I'm going to hold the line. And even if I may be wrong and it may be harming other people, does not matter. I hold it. I feel convicted, which, by the way, most of the time when we use the word convicted, it just means we're convinced of a thing. It's very different. Things are objectively true and we're not in line with the things that are objectively true, then yes, there should be a con conviction. Literally means I'm convicted, I'm guilty. I see myself as guilty there. But many times, many times, the things you think you're convicted by, you're just convinced by whatever circles of influence have helped shape and curate what it is you think or feel. And then we call it, that's God. Well, maybe, or maybe not. Here, in many cases, the church historically, specifically here in America, has often fallen into this, I believe this thing, and if other people are not agreeing, and, they're, uh, and, and, I'm, and things are not being accepted the way I want them to, I am now under attack. I am now being persecuted. Jesus needs to be on my side because I'm under attack, and there's real persecution happening. Listen, there was a story about a man who wrote a Christian radio station and he was talking about just how persecuted he was for being a Christian. And he put it this way. These are his words. He said, I was just driving down the street in my car, and I was playing my Christian music really loud to witness to everyone around. And when I pulled up the, uh, to the stoplight, there was an elder, elderly man in the car next to me, and he just looked over at me with an ugly look on his face. But I didn't care. I knew I was being persecuted for loving Jesus. And he said he played his Christian music really loudly in his home, too, to be a witness to his parents. But they just got mad at him for loving Jesus. Was he being persecuted for righteousness? Or was he being persecuted for being a fool? Y'all, more often than not, the things we think we're holding on to, and I'm just doing this because I'm standing for Jesus and I'm holding the line because this is what Jesus wants me to do. So often that's rooted in a form of self-righteousness. That is not necessarily rooted in something objectively, clearly spelled out in black and white. Here's God's heart. And so when we take that to, this, to, to a further extent, all of a sudden now, there are other things that we will almost want to force uh, to happen. This man, this situation, this so he got what he deserved for his own insensitivity to other people around him. Understand this. God never promises to bless us if we do stupid things to people around us. Now, you're not going to think it's stupid. You're going to feel like, oh, no, I'm just following God. I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. No. You took a preference, elevated to this ultimate thing that you think God called. You, you took a preference and made it a mandate and then tried to force it upon other people. And guess what? Now, because people are pushing back, you feel like you're under attack. And it's often this way with us. Listen, if you spend hours on the job, you're in the workplace, and you spend time talking about the Bible instead of doing your job, and you get in trouble uh, for it, you're not being persecuted, I promise. You're not being persecuted because uh, you just love Jesus so much. I've, I've seen this. I've been in both the workplace and even in the military, and people are supposed to be working, and instead of being working, they're getting long conversations about, and in their mind, they're like, well, it doesn't matter because I'm leading another soul to the Lord, and, and I'm getting another soul in heaven because, again, we think that the great commandment is to, make, is to go out and just make converts and not necessarily make disciples. See, that's a different thing. If you're trying to make an actual disciple, then you're going to go, here's how we have integrity in the workplace, too. 
which means I don't shirk my responsibility to talk about X, Y, and Z. But this, you got people who will do that and go, you know, and they just, they, I just know they fired me because they just didn't love the Jesus in me. No, they could not pay the fool in you. We, we have to be so careful that we can clearly delineate this because this is a problem so often within the church. This is not perse- uh, persecution for righteousness. Now, 2,000 years ago, these Christians that were facing real persecution during the times that Jesus walked the earth, do you realize one thing about them that's very different from us? Please, and I know we, we've addressed this in some other sermons, but I have to bring it up again. If you don't remember anything else, please remember this. When you read the Bible and you look and you try to find yourself in the Bible, because this is what we often like to do, we read ourselves into the text. And I promise you, whenever you do that, whenever you take the Bible and go, let me just figure out what's in it for me. Okay, what does, what does this say to me first? If you do that, I promise you will keep making up new things. I promise you, you will see things that you think are God's truths for for you, and you're actually making up new truths for you. You don't read yourself into the text. You extract out what God intended. You look at the original author. You look at the original audience. How were they understanding this? Then when you go, this is how they would have understood it. Now, how do I extract those truths and apply to what I see now? Please I grew up doing this. A lot of folks, the church tradition I came in, most church traditions do this on some level. Hey, just read the Bible because it's all about my personal, personal relationship. And that's true. But I have to get to a point where I don't start creating a new gospel for myself. So think about what the early church 2,000 years ago, what Christians, people who followed Jesus under threat of potential death, what was life like? For the Christian 2,000 years ago, what you read right now, Jesus talking, giving the Sermon on the Mount, after it's done, decades later, Christians are going. What is life like for them? You know, one thing they don't have, Christians in the Bible have no power. Let me explain what I mean. Christians in the Bible have no access to the levers of political and governmental power. In other words, they have no impact on how they are governed or how their neighbor is governed. None. They're just at the mercy of whatever's happening governmentally. That's it. And they just, Lord, how do I serve you in the midst of having no real representation, in the the midst of having no one to really advocate for me, in the midst of having no real rights to protect me? How do I serve you here? This is the majority of believers throughout the history of the world. Very few. But guess what? The Western world. As an American Christian, you have more power than the majority of believers you'll ever see in heaven. You have more power than most than anybody in Scripture that you see. I'm talking on a human level. More impact on how things go for you and for me and for your neighbor. This was not the case for believers there. Yet, because we believe that persecution is somehow necessary to authenticate our faith, a common refrain throughout Western Christianity, and especially here in America, sounds like these. Well, you can't be open about your Christian faith without being persecuted. You ever heard that? Maybe you've thought it. Maybe you may have even said it. How about this? Traditional family values are being overthrown. Have you ever felt that? Ever seen that? Ever heard that? We're no longer a Christian country. Ever heard that? Ever said that? Maybe felt that? These sentiments are usually rooted in this kind of a script. The script typically goes this way. We are a nation that was built on Christian foundations, and these Christian foundations include a Judeo-Christian ethic and traditional family values, ultimately creating a moral fabric to society that is pleasing to God and has led to the prosperity of Western nations like us. In recent decades, this Christian foundation has been under attack. Postmodernism, feminism, the sexual revolution, gay and transgender rights are challenging the ground on which our society is based. These attacks have been so successful that Christianity is now a persecuted faith. And if you stand up for your faith in public, you will be vilified and ostracized. Christian free speech and religious freedom 
is under threat. Have you ever heard this? <laughs> I'm going to take that as an amen. <laughs> because honestly, this is the common refrain. And because, ironically, the people who feel like they're persecuted, because Christians, specifically evangelical Christians in America, have had so much power to shape and create a narrative like that, that is why we hear that so often. Because there is so much power at play. And so it's easy to be able to, in my opinion, retell and revise history into, well, this was founded on the Christian nation. This was founded on, despite all of the unchristian things that were completely codified into law, we will still say this and continue to say it. And then when things start to deviate or change, or dare I say, more people start getting individual rights, that starts to look like, oh no, something's being overtaken. Oh no, something's changing. People have often said that uh, when it's interesting, when you if you are in the majority on anything and other people begin to get rights, you treat it almost like pie. Oh, no, there's more rights there, which means I must be losing something. The problem with that script that I just read to you is that this is not the case, in fact, at all. Nothing that I just read to you. It does not hear me when I say are there changes? Are there things that are different? Are there different views that might be competing? Yes, there are. This is a secular country. Yes, this is a pluralistic society. Yes, there are going to be a, a competition in the marketplace of ideas. But is there persecution? Is there persecution? I'm not asking if your preferences are not met. Is it persecution? Many times to assert anything else, <laughs> to, 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 if I were to, when I ask this question uh, that, that are Christians being persecuted for their faith around the world, absolutely the answer is yes. There are so many examples, and the reason why this matters is because in many ways, the ways that we're in this faulty kind of Christian persecution complex, it invalidates the real persecution that's happening around the world. There are people who are losing their lives just because they believe in the very name of Jesus. There are people that are legitimately suffering and we should be praying for and advocating for and giving to uh, efforts that are trying to help the persecuted church. But it's so weird how we're, it's, it's almost like a me too, it's, not, it's almost like a, uh, uh, we talk about like the oppression Olympics and uh, that's happening over there where I'm having my own kind of persecution myself. This matters because when Christians behave this way, they demean genuine religious persecution. And that's the reason why, in many ways, the church has become the religious version of the boy who cried wolf. And every time a group of people are like, everything's changing, everything's happening, we're under attack, we're under attack, the rest of the world and the rest of even the country kind of collectively rolls their eyes, and you feel persecuted for that too, don't you? Over the last century or so, America for sure has seen a rise in what some have called this Christian persecution complex. You go back to when state-sanctioned prayers uh, were ended in this country. And people who were non-observers or non-believers who did not want to be forced or compelled to have to engage in prayer in a, in a state-sponsored school, that changed. You know what the church and the Christian community said? We're under attack. Prayer is under attack. This is what you do when you're in that persecution complex. Oh, no, you, that's, I can't do that there? I'm under, I'm under attack. Why? Because we do what we always do. As Christians, so often we will cherry pick the Bible verses that make us believe that this is a necessary right that ought not be taken. Let's go back to another time in history, forced desegregation. You do realize that the majority of the Christian community felt like this was a form of persecution. What do you mean that I am now forced to have to go to this school with people that my own faith tells me I ought not be around? My own faith tells me not to. Remember, there were tons of Christians who believed I have biblical justification to not be, uh, to, to not be and to not mix with Certain people that look different. This wasn't just people saying that's just my preference. These are people who said, 
My Bible tells me so. My faith tells me so. And because this government is now forcing me to do X, Y, and Z, I'm under attack and I'm persecuted. How about the 19th Amendment? Giving women the right to vote. You do know that the majority of the uh, conservative Christian community, do you know what their typical response was to women getting the right to vote? This was because of their reading of the scriptures. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says that husbands and wives are one. And because they're one, the moment you give women the right to vote, won't that violate oneness? Because what if she votes differently than him? But since they're one, when the husband votes, the wife therefore votes. Because they're one. So there's no way that they would ever, we are forcing, they would say, we are forcing division in marriage, which violates God's heart. And because you're forcing this to happen and you're forcing the opportunity for women to be able to vote, you, we are under persecution. We are under attack. Do you see the lazy logic and how this works? Pick a topic that really is just your preference, but you now say it's God's word, which means now it's God's conviction. And so now you are forcing and pushing. Here's the scary thing, though. When it doesn't go your way, how are you likely to react? Because the way, historically, that has worked, those in positions of faith or, or communities of faith who have access to positions of power, more often than not go, it's time to, it's time to bring the hammer down. This thing was taken away, or this, our right, if, 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 to say, to put it plainly, our right was taken away, it's time to get revenge. We're plotting, we're planning. And usually, this Christian persecution complex, this false persecution, can often stem from, from a reduction in overrepresentation. Do you understand? If you are already overrepresented in a particular group, and then that overrepresentation starts to be reduced, so now it starts to reflect probably what more equality should look like, that, that reduction starts to feel like you're under attack. The moment people start to, wait a minute now, we're looking at, uh, you know, specifically as a, as a country, and we're supposed to be in this kind of representative government, when you, you know, I looked this up. When you look at our three chambers of government, do you think that the faith traditions of our, our representatives accurately reflect kind of the demographics of our country? Now, you might be inclined to be like, well, sure. You might think so. But as of 2021, the legislature made up the three, uh, when you look at the legislative branch, Congress is roughly 88% Christian, roughly uh, 60 or 55% Protestant, and roughly 30% Catholic, and then 3% other, several other sects that are involved. So you've got 88% of the legislator that are Christian to varying degrees. However, um, the American population, where do you think that is? Because we've got 88% legislator, le legislature, and you're looking at roughly 65% of the country that identifies as Christian. I'm not saying what should be or shouldn't be. What I'm saying is there's no question that if you talk about what people group are in the levers of power, would you not argue? How could you ever believe that Christianity or people who identify as Christians are under attack or being persecuted? How? The majority of people who are in power identify on some level, varying degrees, as Christian. You know what that means? That means that there is a disconnect between the legislature and the people it purports to represent. It means that there's an overrepresentation of certain positions. And why am I saying this? Because when those positions become challenged, that's when people feel persecuted. Individually, we do this. You're having a position and somebody else has a position and, and uh, for whatever reason, the fact that they don't agree with your position, now you're feeling on some level under attack. You feel on some level like, well, if, if, you're not, if, this, isn't, if this position isn't being advocated for, I, I feel like something wrong is happening. I feel like something must be taken away from me. 
For those who falsely believe that they're being persecuted but still maintain the levers of power, here's the scary thing. When you're in a group or you're a part of a group that feels like that they are being persecuted but you still have all the power, you know what you easily become? A persecutor yourself. It becomes really easy because you already feel like you're being persecuted, which means there's a lot to there's a lot to get revenge for. There's a lot to fix. I've been under attack. I've got to fix the things that that made me feel under attack. We take a position which many times is a political one. We look for scriptural support. Then we assert it as the moral absolute. And when there's disagreement, we simply posit that this is This disagreement is evidence of people's rebellion against God. And since they rebel against God, then they're rebelling against us. And any endeavor they take to advance that contrary position is an affront and a form of persecution. This is one of the hardest sermons I've ever had to preach in my life. As we've come through this last week, this very controversial week, very difficult, very complex issue, as we are, the, 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 the nation as a whole is responding to the overturning of Roe v. Wade and what that has meant and is meaning for several people. I know that these kinds of uh, topics cause a lot of, I believe, necessary conversations, but I think we'd be irresponsible if we just did not address it here on some level. This is not even intended to be an exhaustive handling of it but we would be irresponsible and we would lack compassion if we didn't even begin to enter into what is happening and how many of our fellow image bearers and some even here in this room are engaging and dealing with this. As Roe v. Wade was overturned and the right of women to choose an abortion was sent back to the states, the 68% of Americans who agreed with the original ruling of Roe v. Wade are in a position and a state of, of, of mourning. Morning that right after that, 13 states enacted immediately what is called trigger laws that have varying levels of exceptions to their total bans on abortion. And few states, a few states have no exceptions whatsoever. Now, the question has to be, again, for those of us who feel like, those people who feel like my position on this must be God's position. And so any contrary position is some form of that view being persecuted or any laws that are passed must be a form of persecution. The question has to be now that these things have changed as Christians, as people who are genuinely trying to follow God and follow God's heart. And hopefully that is what we use to guide our actions and our thoughts. What does this mean for women? What does this mean for image bearers? We've all read Genesis. Male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. So what does this mean for female image bearers? Well, for some, it may mean something similar to the case of Savita Halapanavar, 31-year-old dentist in Ireland who started to miscarry at 17 weeks. She lived in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland had just passed a total uh, ban on abortion. And so she arrived at the university hospital there with the fetal sac half delivered. And the doctors, because of the law, could not give her the necessary drugs just to expel the, the already dying fetus. Because the law was absolute, Right? The law was you're not allowed to give even the drugs that are necessary to uh, expel the remaining uh, parts of the fetus. And so this woman developed sepsis. And once a fetal heartbeat was no longer detectable, then they began to remove uh, the fetus. And it was too late. Her blood was poisoned. And she died seven days after being admitted to the hospital. They did an official investigation and they attributed her fate to what they called medical misadventure. And this was just an unfortunate accident. But the medical professor who presided over a subsequent investigation told uh, the Irish government committee that the abortion ban had tied doctors' hands. Had uh, the hospital terminated her pregnancy when she first asked, we would never have heard of her and she would be alive today. 
I talked to a labor and delivery nurse here in Georgia over the weekend who said that after Roe v. Wade was overturned, the nurses were gathered together. This would have been Saturday. The, so a day after or so, the, the, uh, the nurses were gathered and all of the supervisory uh, officers in the hospital came and said, as of right now, because we are certain what's going to happen in Georgia as a result, it is necessary that when you have a woman that comes in with an ectopic pregnancy, you are not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to advise on what can happen. Your job now is to just wait until she becomes septic. Then we can do something. Now, this is bigger than just some theological debate. This is bigger than just, but I've always thought and I've always believed this is bigger than that. There, is, there are legitimately, right now, because of where we are, I am not telling you everything that God must think about this or that. What I am saying is, it's a very dangerous, complex situation that if we are not careful and we don't lead with mercy and love for other image bearers, people are going to die. People we love. People that we say we care for. People that God loves. People that are in God's image. So we don't have a choice. We should not feel like we have a choice just to either hide behind a cold, completely lacking compassion, theological position that we think is so clear that there are people that will actually suffer. Now, for those of us who um, hold to a very, uh, what you might call robust, so-called pro-life position, and again, this, I think that these labels are dangerous because I don't think that these things are exhaustively even what God says. But since these are the labels that we have, then let's just engage it for a minute. If the reason why we are pushing forth certain things that we know in certain situations and other countries have caused incredible carnage and caused incredible danger and make actual women feel like they are persecuted, Let's just step into this, this robust position of so-called pro-life. And let's ask ourselves the question, God, is this what you're saying here? Let's just do it. I know this is controversial. I know this is heavy. But we can't just keep hiding behind, well, it's hard, and not say anything. Because I can tell you, in other churches, in churches I've been a part of, and even things that I've said that I feel guilty for, it's really easy to hide behind stuff and just say it and not think about how it impacts people. So let's look at it. Because again, <laughs> these are positions that we believe we're being persecuted for, specifically for us men. Let's just say this is not even an issue that even directly affects us. And dare I say, this is not the say of the Lord, this is me, but dare I say, if men could get pregnant, this wouldn't even be a topic. Amen. But let's, let's, let's move. Let's move through this. So what does it mean to be pro-life, y'all? What does it really mean to say, I'm pro-life? Because I believe we've had it wrong, and I believe that Christians, specifically in certain sects, have gotten this wrong, and I think there's some other historic reasons why, and we can talk about that on a different day. I think if you really want to do the history and the research, I think being pro-life has been a convenient way to be anti-civil rights, but that's a whole different topic. Talk to me later, because I promise you there's a lot of reasons for that. But let's just talk about what it really means to be, to be pro-life, okay? Because ultimately the idea is, we'll take, we'll cherry-pick a verse. Man, God hates the shedding of innocent life. Boom, there's my verse. Got it. Before I knit you together in your mother's womb, I knew you. Boom, there it is. I got it. Close my Bible. Start uh, uh, advocating for a certain position. Feel pompous and high in the fact that I'm holding God's hand. I know where God stands. Anybody else that wants to argue, they're not arguing with me. They're arguing with God. Okay, so is that accurate or is that lazy? Because I'm going to tell you, I've been that person. I'm going to tell you, if that is the way you think, your laziness is causing real damage for image bearers. You're asserting something that I'm going to really argue is not exactly at all what God is really saying about what it means to be pro-life. So let's start real quick. <clears throat> when I look at uh, Exodus chapter 20, this is the kind of passage that you're never going to hear preached in a sermon. You know, there are some of these passages in Scripture that we just don't tend to, nobody's going to be like, hey, we're going to have a devotional. Let's go into this 
really hard, kind of nasty passage that has, get, leaves me with questions I don't know how to answer. We like the neat stuff, the nice stuff. Let's go to Proverbs. That's nice. Exodus 20, verse, uh, I'll probably start, I'll start Exodus 20. Uh, let me see where this is here. Matter of fact, I'll start, I'm sorry, I meant numbers. Let's look at numbers. Numbers 5, 11 through 31. So in numbers 5, you've got a situation where there is, uh, there are questions, there are laws being passed about, uh, God is giving the law to the people about what should be done when there's potential adultery or if someone is, suspects that their wife may have committed adultery, what should happen? And if she happened to get pregnant after being an adultery, what ought to be done? So Numbers 5, I'm just going to kind of go right through. This is what's known as the jealousy ritual. Let's start at verse 11. I'm going to read right through it. The Lord spoke to Moses, okay? God speaking. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, if any man's wife goes astray, is unfaithful to him, and sleeps with another, but it is concealed from her husband, and she is undetected, even though she has defiled herself, since there is no witness against her, and she wasn't caught in the act, and if a feeling of jealousy comes over the husband, and he becomes jealous because of his wife who has defiled herself, or if a feeling of jealousy comes over him, and he becomes jealous of her, though she has not defiled herself, then the man is to bring his wife to the priest." He is also to bring an offering for her of two quarts of barley flour. He is not to pour oil over it or put frankincense on it because it is a grain offering or a jealousy of jealousy, a grain offering for remembrance to draw attention to guilt. The priest is to bring her forward and have her stand before the Lord. Then the priest is to take holy water in a clay bowl, take some of the dust from the tabernacle floor and put it in the water. After the priest has the woman stand before the Lord, he is to let down her hair and place in her hands the grain offering for remembrance, which is the grain offering of jealousy. The priest is to hold the bitter water that brings a curse. The priest will require the woman to take an oath and will say to her, if no man has slept with you, if you have not gone astray and become defiled while under your husband's authority, be unaffected by this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you've gone astray while under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and a man uh, other than your husband has slept with you, at this point the priest will make the woman take the oath with the sworn curse, and he is to say to her, may the Lord make you into an object of your people's cursing and swearing when he makes your womb shrivel and your belly swell. May this water that brings a curse into your stomach, causing your belly to swell, and your womb to shrivel, and the woman reply, amen and amen. Do, do you know what we just read? What we just read is uh, God saying, if your wife gives you reason for suspicion, then go to the temple and get this elixir that will force an abortion. Is this about saying, so let's go for abortion? That's not even about what's for abortion or not. What I, this is clearly God's, if there's this through line that we're saying, no, this is God's heart. And this is what it means for genuinely, to, for us to be pro-life. We say we're reflecting God's heart for life. And yet here, God is like, listen, if you feel like that your wife has messed around and she's pregnant, we're going to put it to the test. And if she was being honest, don't worry, that baby won't die. But if she wasn't being honest, that baby will die. What is your definition of pro-life again? This is not about saying, yay, abortion or anything like that. What this is saying is the ways that we define pro-life and then start making real bona fide legislation decisions based off of that, it better be rooted in something solid. The other passage I was looking for in Exodus, you see an example here of uh, where, where two men are fighting. And in the midst of two men fighting, what the word says is, if two men are fighting and a man swings and he misses the guy and he hits a woman instead, if he kills her in the process, then he is to lose his life because a life for a life. However, if he hits the woman and she's pregnant and she loses her baby, he pays a fine. But I thought life for life. Y'all, this is not to say don't think about unborn children as life. This is not even what we're going. 
What I'm saying is be very careful about these full-throated endorsements that we give about what we claim is God's heart when it is far more complex. Stop living in these lazy places because we don't want to do the dirty work, the heavy lifting of figuring out what it means to love people, what it means to genuinely care for people. There are people that are genuinely suffering. We see examples further where the killing of children and babies are used as a form of punishment. If you recall in Jeremiah, the, the people of Israel were worshiping idols. In Jeremiah 44, and God decided that not one of his people would live, not a man, not a woman, not a child, even babies in their mother's arms killed. If this recurring theme is, man, the one thing, the one thing that God just really gets uh, up in arms and the things that God just genuinely cares about and his heart breaks is this, then you would see this consistently through, but we don't. Now, this is not to say that you don't feel something or feel completely broken. There are people who have been trying to have children and have lost children and are heavily heartbroken because that is a very real thing. But here's the, the point. Outside of the things that are clearly demarcated in Scripture, then we need to engage each other case by case and figure out how do I massage the heart of God into this situation? Period. That's how you love people. There's only a few things in Scripture that are just across the board we know. And we don't even have to debate. That's not even up for debate. But there are things, there are areas that we begin to think are a black and white issue, and they're all kinds of shades of gray. And the reason why this matters is because in so many ways, there are beliefs that we hold that we think are just rooted in God's heart. And they're really just rooted in either a faulty interpretation or some type of uh, 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 thing that we prefer based on where we were raised or what we came up in. And then we advocate and we push to the exclusion of others. What am I saying basically is this, God does not appear to fit. And there are several other examples. I mean, I probably have 12 or 13 verses we could walk through where you start having to go, wait a minute, God, wait. I've, I've been, because of my view of pro-life, I'm like the, you know, I, we live in a country right now where, where, uh, <laughs> where guns seem to have more rights than women. So, so, so ultimately I have to figure out, wait, God, I thought that you said that, that, that uh, this idea of like children and the way I've been taught about this pro-life position is this, you care so much, like you, you care so much. And because you care, I care uh, about that one singular issue. I care. And yet there are so many verses we can walk through where you're like, wait, wait, God, like in the flood, there were a lot of unborn babies. Why? Why didn't you make any exception for them? And I know we can say, we can be like, well, that's God. God can do what he wants because he's God. That's true. I'm not at all arguing with that. What I'm saying is we need to adjust then what we claim is this holistic view or this view of pro-life. This definition needs to shift for us. If we're going to be consistent with scripture, it needs to shift. Which means there is no one, I don't know that there is no one easy thing to go, and here's what pro-life is. Because if so, you're going to have to ignore a lot of other scriptures. If so, you're going to have to explain why during Sodom and Gomorrah, everybody gets burned up, including a bunch of unborn babies or babies that are born. You have to go, wait a minute, God, you care so much about that. Why wouldn't you stop that? Here's the thing. I don't think that our conventional definition of pro-life applies to God. God has shown us over and over again, he's not pro-life in that sense. He's just pro-God. And so it, when there are things that are specifically God says, this brings me glory to do this, boom. This doesn't mean we always like it. We don't even always understand it. But God is pro-God. So you and I, we're in a situation to go, okay, Lord, I the, the areas that are great, I have to figure out case by case where this is. This is why when we try to almost clinically and in a detached fashion go, well, my, my beliefs tell me this, so just got to go with it, even if it means that it's going to cause real pain and suffering. Now, at the risk of going from the sublime to the ridiculous, there is an incredible quote that I found that I know one person in this room would really like a lot, and it's from 
a, a book, a Star Wars book, uh, that that uh, called Master and Apprentice. And here's the reason why I'm bringing this up is because there's one really incredible Jedi, Obi Wan Kenobi, that was like a big. Uh, he's he's the one that trained Anakin Skywalker. We can't. It doesn't matter. Y'all don't care about that. Here's the deal. <clears throat> While he was being trained, in the book, he starts writing about what it meant to be trained by his Jedi master, Qui-Gon Jinn. And here's something that Qui-Gon said to him that I thought was so telling. He said, if our beliefs tell us one thing and the needs of real people tell us another, can there be any question of which we should listen to? I know where some of our evangelical minds are going to go right away. Wait a minute, are you saying that the culture then should dictate what the Bible says? No, we're not saying that at all. What we're saying is these areas that are not clearly defined and clearly demarcated, be careful about how hard and close-fisted you are in punching people with it. Be careful because people are being harmed by it. Be careful about feeling like I've got to do this because this position that God holds is under persecution. No, we are the persecutors. When you look at the history of people who are underrepresented or people who have not been protected well, you realize that those who have been in the circles of whatever you might call conservative Christian communities have almost always been on the side of withholding rights and not giving them. History just says that, y'all. It doesn't matter what you go to. If you were a good conservative Christian in the 1800s, you were pro-slavery. The majority of abolitionists were the progressive during that time. If you were a good conservative Christian, you were someone that was very much anti-women's right to vote. I mean, yeah, you were anti-women's right to vote. If you were progressive, you were for that. If you were a good uh, conservative Christian, you were for the Jim Crow era. You thought you had good biblical reasons for it. It was the progressives that were against that. This is not to say who's good and who's bad. There's a bunch of issues here. The point is, you, we have to step back and go, how lazy am I being and who's going to, be, who's going to suffer because of it? At the end of the day, what we're called to be in this kingdom that Jesus has given us, you have to ask yourself in looking at these beatitudes, Lord, what does it mean for me to begin, even with this issue, with my own brokenness? And part of that brokenness is in what ways am I prone to overlook the suffering because of some other things that have been pre-programmed in me to respond with instead of dealing with the real pain and suffering that people are dealing with in their real lives? In what ways am I overlooking that so, so I'm not acknowledging my own brokenness first and I'm not in a place where I'm mourning those things because I don't mourn it because I've been told to mourn something else. So I'm mourning that. I don't mourn the situations that people are in. I don't mourn the fact that, that, and again, there's no easy answer to this, but we got to deal with the facts. I don't mourn, uh, people aren't mourning the fact that when there are people, we know this, when there are people that are, uh, I, I've had to read stories, and I, I think we all should read stories of people who are in dangerous, really scary, death, uh, de some, sometimes deathly situations as a result of being in these hard places. Read a story of a woman who was raped by her father and was impregnated. And because of the state that she was in, there was nothing that could be done. Read these stories about women who were raped and who were impregnated, and then the courts forced them to allow for the fathers to be in the lives of their children. Having to see people who are assaulted by family members, and then the ways that they are treated. And then let's talk about, you've got to understand, even adoption isn't the answer to this. I know that that's the typical Christian response. Well, let's just go to adoption in the best way. And you'll see many times, even Christian organizations that will form 501c3s because we want to help situations with adoption. That's not the ultimate answer. That's just dealing with a symptom. How do we know that? Because the majority of babies that are adopted, number one, are white. Number two, the older the baby is, the less likely they are to be adopted. Which means that the majority of the babies that are given up for adoption, where are they? In the foster system. Guess who has a higher likelihood of mental health issues? Guess who has a higher likelihood of other health uh, issues? Guess who has a likelihood of dealing with abuse? Guess who has a likelihood of having less education? Guess who has a likelihood of having to be entered into the carceral system? But the moment we talk about that, that's not, that's not for Christians to worry about, huh? You do realize that every time we get to this place where we're banging the pro-life uh, gavel and we're doing this as if we're doing it for the Lord, we look duplicitous and disingenuous and we do not look like Jesus. Because it's not that simple. 
We have to get into the lives and walk through. What does it mean for me to engage with brokenness? What does it mean to engage with genuine mourning? What does it mean to be humble in engaging these issues? What does it mean to to want to genuinely see the kingdom of God lived out here as it is in heaven? What does that look like? This idea of, this kind of lazy idea of almost legislating discipleship to the government instead of us engaging with people's actual lives? It's just what we've done. So I don't give this sermon with the hopes that there is now a very clear idea of what we're supposed to do with the actual topic or issue. All I'm saying is when it's not clear what to do, don't jump to this lazy, overbroad brush approach because people are hurting and some people are dying. We need to be careful of taking strong views and claiming that they're biblical and therefore we push forward. We need to be careful when others disagree with us because we become tempted to think that that equals persecution. The kind of persecution that brings a blessing again is the kind of persecution that's rooted in the righteousness of God. And what we know is righteous. It's something that we already know what God has told us. We quote it all the time here. What God requires from us is righteousness. And what are those things? That we do justice, that we love mercy, and we walk humbly. So whatever position you land on, ask yourself, am I, am I satisfying what God requires of me? Am I doing real justice? Are people, image bearers, specifically women, being able to live life the way it was meant to be lived with all of the protection that's necessary? Am I able to engage that from a place of real mercy? Does my position hold a real merciful position here? With all of the gray areas about what God, what God says and how God views and when life begins, all those things are vitally important. But am I engaging this mercifully? And am I walking humbly in this? I believe that we would find ourselves being incredibly loving to one another, especially the female image bearers of God, if we led with that first. Not a political convincing, but a true beatitudinal conviction. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, these things aren't easy, and we don't even have clearly defined answers. But Father, I feel like we hopefully are seeing some things that ought not be answers. I pray that uh, whatever is to befall us next, I pray that there would be a place for your people to engage with humility, with mercy. I pray that we are so overtaken by these things that we're trying to find creative ways to love people well. God, I pray for those who are disproportionately affected by this. God, I'm thinking of a pharmacist who recently was disallowed from even giving medicine to a woman who had suffered a miscarriage but could not because of fear that they would be persecuted or prosecuted. God, I pray for medical workers. I pray for those who are genuinely wanting to care for women. God, I pray for women who are facing impossibly hard decisions. I pray that we not gloss over. I pray that we not uh, in some ways mischaracterize what it is. God, I pray that we would, you would give us wisdom on how to bring the right level of compassion. And God, I pray that if we err, I pray that we err on the side of love and inclusion and not on the side of a lack of mercy and exclusion. And I pray, Father, that that would be the heart that undergirds however we engage each other. God, we know that you, you know what it is to be persecuted. You know what it means to be persecuted for your righteousness. So God, I pray with the very righteousness you've given us, I pray that we engage these issues. And if we find ourselves being persecuted there, then let us find comfort and know that there is a blessing there. God, I pray that you convict us on places where we are falsely believing that we are persecuted. And I pray that we not feel any degree of blessedness there. I pray that you bring real conviction that there's some way in which we have gone astray. Lord, we all have. God, I pray that in that convicting, we pray that you would then convert our hearts in those places. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God from whom all blessings
Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.